Hi, I'm Melissa Corkum. I blog at our family website, www.thecorkums.com, which we affectionately call The Corkboard. This is the Uncorked Podcast, conversations with everyday extraordinary people, people who have conquered, people making a difference in their worlds, brave and beautiful people, but people who in the end are just like you and me. If there's one thing I've learned over the past 10 years, it's about how much I didn't know that I didn't know and how much I still don't know. Our experiences and adoption and loving kids who have aged out of the foster care system, living in the country but owning a coffee shop in the city, and just traveling internationally have so greatly expanded our horizons and shifted our paradigms. And hopefully we're better humans for it. The one common theme through all of those experiences though was just listening to people's stories. Patty Dye once said, the shortest distance between two people is a story. So pull up a chair and an open mind and meet another one of my everyday extraordinary friends. Hey guys, this is episode 26 of the Uncorked podcast. My guest this week is Blythe Royards. She and her husband Eric are on the board for an organization called the Lost Sparrows, whose goal is to stop the flow of orphans into institutions in Bulgaria through education and support of birth families and the recruitment of foster families. She's a super mom who is usually already homeschooling four of her five kiddos by 8 a.m., and she owns a vacuum for every occasion. We also chat about the importance of bringing awareness to post-adoption depression, something that happens even in domestic infant adoptions. So here's my conversation with Blythe. Hey, good morning, Blythe. Welcome to the Uncorked Podcast. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So how are you guys doing this morning? It's We're both on the East Coast. It's like 8 a.m., um, <laughs> Your people are, are they still in bed or what's going on in your house? Yeah, so they're still, um, they have woken up. It's about eight o'clock in the morning here. And normally by this point in the day, we are homeschooling and have eaten breakfast. But since I get to chat with you, they get to get up and do some things that they don't normally get to do, like watch TV and play on the iPad. So yeah, we're already moving this morning. It's so early. I'm an early person. I do love the morning. I'm most productive in the morning, but never, even when my kids were little, were we, well, we didn't homeschool when they were little, but we were never up and moving and that productive, I think, at 8 a.m. So kudos to you because that's pretty impressive. When do you guys usually finish school then if you're up at 8? So that depends really on how many breaks we need to take. Um, I have one son that has um, ADHD. And so we tend to do a math worksheet and then he'll run outside and ride his bike or, you know, go play in the woods or something like that. So usually we finish up um, around two o'clock or so. But if it's just been a harder day where we need to take more breaks, it's usually later in the afternoon. Yeah. I have always struggled to know whether I should just have school be from like, like a set time to a set time and whatever we get done, we get done. Or if I want to have a checklist of things I would like to get done in that day and then just you know, like you said, keep doing breaks, do whatever we need to do, but keep coming back to it until that amount of work is finished. So yeah, I'm really big on checklists. So it's really hard for me to do breaks. I would rather just power through and get through it. But you know, I have to do what's best for him sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I bet that's probably I'm a checklist person too. And so that is really hard for me because I'm like, I just want to be done. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, so we know you have kids. Introduce us to yourself a little bit about your family and, I don't know, whatever you'd like 
everyone to know about you? What's kind of your elevator speech for who you guys are? Oh, gosh. Okay. So um, my husband and I were both born in South Carolina, and we met when we were in college and got married um, about a year after we met. Yeah, so we've lived in South Carolina our whole lives. I've always had a secret desire to live out west. (laughs) I just would love to go visit Colorado and the Grand Canyon and Utah and Arizona, Um, but so far that has not happened. So we have five children, uh, two are biological, and we have done one domestic adoption with our daughter, and then we've done two international adoptions. Um, We've been married for 10 years, and we've just had a lot happen through those 10 years. We've dealt with infertility and a miscarriage and some other family illnesses and then just adoptions and things like that. So, yeah, that's kind of my family. That is a incredibly intense 10 years. I am. It really is. Yeah. (laughs) Uber impressed. So if you ever want to head out west, one of my previous podcast guests, her name is Hope, and she's in Colorado, she was on episode 15 and has a huge heart for adoption. And I told her, I said, that's like one of the states that I've always dreamed about going to. I don't know. I have very high expectations for Colorado. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so she lives there and you should look her up if you ever go there. Maybe she'll let you crash on her floor or something. But Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm with you. I don't know. I don't have dreams about living there, but I definitely have dreams about being there, vacationing there often, kind of hanging out. I really like to be near an ocean, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Colorado is has always been on my top states list. And again, I've never been there, so maybe that's why it stays up there, but I'm with you. Well, the pictures are just so beautiful. And, you know, my husband and I talk every once in a while about renting an RV and taking a vacation, you know, and just doing like a road trip. And then I think about being cooped up in an RV with all five of my children for two weeks. And I think maybe that would be better if we just did it by ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, maybe you wouldn't, I mean, except for the driving, it would be a lot of driving, but you could adventure a lot. You wouldn't have to be maybe cooped up. I don't know, but that's a lot of it's kids true. under, how old's your oldest? So we have two eight-year-olds, a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah, I don't know. Although I always yeah. do better, my husband, I do better when my husband's around. So I kind of feel like trips like that, if it was the both of us, it, it might be okay. I mean, obviously. Yeah, conquering divide. And day out, Yeah. That those are hard ages to have all by yourself all the time. We're kind of the opposite. We're like, um, we're just so fed up with our stuff. We like want to be minimalist and like. So we went to an outdoor show recently and took our youngest too. And we went. There was an like a whole exhibit hall of RVs, and we kind of walked into some of the bigger ones. And we we're like, guys, so like, could you see yourself living here? And so they're a little bit older now, so we don't have as many, like, toys. They don't have as many things that they like to mm-hmm. – and we were like, let's just sell our house and live in an RV, and we could go anywhere. And, I mean, literally some of these RVs are bigger than the first apartment that my husband and I owned. I mean – or rented. It, they're just – you know, the kids are like, oh, my gosh, we get our own bedroom, and look, there's a full shower yeah. and a bathtub. And, I mean, it was pretty crazy, but, I mean, so we're like – thinking we don't just want a vacation in one we're thinking we're going to just sell all of our stuff and move into one (laughs) yeah that's pretty intense (laughs) yeah but again we only have 
two kiddos left. So we have six altogether, but only two that would probably make the jump with us. And so mm-hmm. that feels a little bit more doable. Yeah, it does. Um, and we, again, I think we would just drive, you know, sleep and drive in it. I think we would probably adventure a lot. And so maybe it wouldn't feel so, so constricting. And all I can think of is I could clean something this size. Like I hate cleaning and I'm like, it's so much easier to manage. I know I follow a couple, well, I've seen a couple of blogs where, you know, people have done that. They've sold all of their belongings and they've moved into an RV and they just travel around and um, it looks great until like a sickness happens or the RV breaks down and, you know, it's in the shop for a week and a half and they have to figure out where to stay. So I think there could definitely be some downsides. I don't know that I would want to do it full time, but I think it would be a lot of fun to do it, you know, a couple of weeks out of the year. Yeah. I had, um, the other thing that we considered, not seriously, but I don't know, the more I talk about it, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but we road tripped two summers ago. And so we stayed in a lot of hotels. And I said to my husband, I was like, I think we're missing out. I think we should just live in a hotel. <laughs> because honestly, if we get one, you know, say it's 100 bucks a night. So that's like $3,000 a month. And that is really not that much more than what we pay for our mortgage, quite honestly. And yeah. there wouldn't be utilities on top of that. They pay for cable and there's maid service. And if you got one that served free breakfast, that would cut out like a third <laughs> of your food budget. And then yes. once they clean up the breakfast situation, they would, we could totally homeschool at those little tables in the lobby. And, you know, we would just, I think you might be pool. onto something. I know there's a pool and we would just, go, you know, we would just adventure. Like we wouldn't need to be hang around all day, but we would just go do other things and hang out in other places, coffee shops or kids museums or whatever. And we would come back and the room would be clean and. And you would earn points. So then you could go use those points to travel and vacation in other hotel rooms. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. But I did think (laughs) about the vacationing, which was, you know, we took this two week road trip, but we were still paying our electric bill and to cool the house and our mortgage. Right. I'm like, well, if you Mm -hmm. take off for like a month to go backpack across Europe or do something else fun, like you don't pay for the time you're not at the hotel. Yeah. That's actually really not a bad idea. I'm sure there's some downsides, but it sounds really good right now. I know. I'm, I'm sure there are some downsides, but I'm thinking, and you could live in multiple places. Like it wouldn't be hard to be like, oh, well, you know, let's try Colorado for a month. You know, you could just (laughs) try different places. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of downsides. And I think the biggest downsides are when you have a lot of kids or, you know, Mm -hmm. and they want stuff. But I'm thinking in my retirement for sure. Yeah. I'm sure they wouldn't mind come visiting you in different places. Yeah. So there's that. Well, that's fun. So tell me more about your adoption story. We... This isn't necessarily an adoption podcast, but those are kind of the circles I run in. And we've had a lot of adoption-themed families come through. So tell me a little bit about how that all came about for your family. Yeah, so, well, and that kind of is our family theme, um, is adoption. Our family is just kind of centered around that. So after Eric and I got married, well, let me start back in the beginning. So when I was younger, um, I can totally remember begging my parents to either foster or adopt a child. And I had two younger brothers. And in my little kid's mind, um, I knew that families had other kids. So I figured, well, if other families have more kids, then why can't our family do it? And so it was just something that never really ended up happening um, 
when I was younger. I can't understand why. <laughs> but so when Eric and I started dating and we were talking about children, I let him know that, you know, in the future that adoption was something that I really wanted to do. So after we got married, we, you know, said in the beginning that we wanted to wait. But I just really felt like the Lord was saying, you need to start a family now. Like, I just had this feeling that there was something wrong. And so it ended up that there kind of was. And so we struggled with infertility. Um, and after a couple of months of seeing a specialist, we got pregnant with our first son. And after he was born, the doctor told us that we shouldn't wait too long to try again because, you know, my body would remember being pregnant. So maybe it would be easier this time around. But so let's see. Yeah. So then after four months um, of trying with another doctor, we got pregnant. And then soon after we had a miscarriage and I was just totally devastated. So we tried again. And after about a year or so, we decided that it didn't really matter how a child came into our family. Um, you know, we just knew that we wanted more children. And so at this point in our marriage, we were just completely clueless about international adoption. And so, you know, honestly, like I, when I thought about international adoption, I would have visions of a commercial with Sarah McLaughlin playing in the background. You know, just, I don't know, we thought it was too expensive. We didn't think Eric would be able to take off time from work to go travel. And we just didn't think we could handle any children with special needs. And that was just kind of my impression of international adoption. So we started a domestic adoption in January 2011. And our daughter was born in September. So it happened really quickly, and which is great. <laughs> but then after her adoption, I really struggled with post-adoption depression. And back then, I really didn't think that that was a thing. I didn't know that it had a name. So I kind of just, you know, shouldered through it. And I had my mom and my husband completely supporting me. But when I look back now, um, I realized how dark of a hole I was really in back then. And even now I have a lot of guilt when I think back because, you know, I'm, I'm sure that that hurt my relationship between me and my daughter. And, you know, I pray that he, that God would heal those wounds for both of us. And, you know, I truly believe he is because I can see the fruit of the redemption now. So, yeah, so that's kind of the story of our first adoption, the domestic adoption. Four months after our daughter was born, um, we had a surprise pregnancy with Bennett. And so he was born in 2012. And then while we were pregnant with Bennett, Eric and I were just kind of talking about, you know, what the future would look like in terms of fostering and adopting. And we knew we wanted to do it again, but we weren't sure, you know, what that path would look like if we were going to foster, if we were going to adopt. And so... Let's see. In 2013, uh, my friend Rachel was over at her house and she was getting ready to head to Ukraine to adopt and she was looking at our baby carrier. And while she was there, she was just telling me all about international adoption. And to say that, I mean, I had no idea. Like, it was like the wool was removed from my eyes. Like, it truly was because we just didn't know. We didn't know about international adoption or orphanages or anything like that. And so um, after she left, we started doing some research and, you know, we realized that there's kids who spend their entire lives in a crib or kids that died because they were starved and abused. And, you know, we truly had no clue. And so we just started praying about what that would look like for us to do an international adoption, especially having three kids at home that were so young. In 2015, we brought home Nicholas. He was six years old and he has cerebral palsy and he spent the first six years of his life in a Bulgarian orphanage. <laughs> um, 
And he is truly an amazing kid. I tell people all the time that I feel like God just had a bubble of protection around him because he is joyful and compassionate and loving and forgiving. And his story is just amazing. I am just completely blown away (laughs) by him. So after his adoption, my husband said that he was not, that he didn't really want to adopt again. He kind of felt like our family was complete and I was not on the same page. (laughs) And so early 2016, so this was about five months or so after Nicholas came home, a friend, so Rachel, the friend that, you know, had originally introduced us to international adoption, she sent me a picture of this little boy who was in a Ukrainian orphanage and I screenshotted it and sent it to my husband and he texted back and said, oh, that boy's really cute, but we're not adopting him. And so (laughs) being the person that I am, I was like, well, we'll see. And so I started dropping all these hints like, oh, you know, we could fit another person into our van or, wow, we could fit a bigger table in our dining room, you know, just things like that, like just dropping hints all over the place. And so, yeah, so my husband's biggest fear about that adoption was that this little boy had Down syndrome and he was one. And honestly, we knew nothing about Down syndrome. When we were going through the process with Nicholas and we were finding out about his his different needs with cerebral palsy, we, you know, were looking at other kids and we thought, well, there's no way we could handle, you know, a need like Down syndrome. Like that just seems so overwhelming. And um, now when I look back, my heart just hurts to think about the fact that we really just didn't know the truth. But I also remember that I cannot be hard on myself because, you know, that saying like, you don't know what you don't know, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we ended up just finding out more about Down syndrome. And we actually went over again to the friend Rachel's house because she had two kids that she had adopted from Ukraine with Down syndrome. And while we were over there, her husband just kind of like leaned over and put their daughter in my husband's lap. And for him, it just kind of clicked. Like he realized that a lot of the fears that he had had just were of the world and not of I don't really know how to explain that part, but just they were of the world. And, you know, he just, we both realized that the Lord was going to provide when he's calling us to do something. He's not just going to call us and then leave us. And so we brought home Zeb um, about six months later in July, 2016. So yeah, that's pretty much how adoption is in our family. <laughs> that's amazing. So what I love about that story at the end is, and this happens a lot, in the real world, and we've told a lot of these stories on the show, is sometimes when you're face-to-face with somebody and their story, you know, the closer you can get to someone and the more you know who they are and who makes them them is such a great way to quiet all the fears that we have about whatever the situation is. And so a mm-hmm. lot of times, right, we've built up all of these things that create this fear, and some of them are legitimate concerns, but... Again, there's something about being face to face with a little person and, you know, so many of those things seem to be dimmed in the, in the interaction of just knowing someone else and knowing that there's so many other things that make him just like other little boys. Yeah. There's more similarities than there are differences. And so I love that part of your story. Um, I want to backpedal a little bit just to the postpartum depression. Looking back, what do you wish you had known? about that, about how it would feel, about what it was, about where the support was? Have you ever, what was that journey like and what do you wish you had known? When she came home, 
while we adopted her, where the state we adopted her from, we had to stay in state for a week. And it was just a really hard week. Like we couldn't, she cried a lot and we couldn't figure out really what was wrong. And, and then as we were coming home, I was really sick. And so the first week or so after we got home, I was pretty much in bed. And then after that, it just didn't ever seem like I could figure out what was wrong. I just felt like I couldn't do anything right. And I did not know that post-adoption depression was a real thing. I just, you know, from all the stories that you hear, everybody just comes home and it's wonderful. And you've been working so hard for all these months to fundraise and to get paperwork ready and to prepare your home. And everything is just all about the excitement. You know, whenever I would read stories, it was always the people that struggled after adoption. It seemed like they were the ones that had adopted internationally or they had adopted from DSS. And so with a private infant adoption, I was not expecting to have such a hard time. And whenever I would, you know, talk about it with someone, I almost felt like I was crazy because I don't know, it just seemed like it really wasn't accepted that I was a difficult time or, you know, people would say, oh, but it's normal. Like she's a baby, babies cry, or they just didn't believe that it was as hard as it really was. So I think looking back, I wish I had reached out to maybe like a counselor or maybe our social worker. Thanks so much for sharing that part of your story, though, because there's got to be other people out there who are in a similar situation who maybe even know that postpartum depression exists but are having similar thoughts to like what you said, which is it feels like it happens in these other situations and that's not my situation. And so there must be something wrong with me. And Exactly. And it's so isolating to feel like you're the only one in a situation. And I say this to so many people, like, you're never alone. There's always someone going through what you're going through to some extent. And finding those people is so important because I think I was just talking about this recently with another guest. Like, that camaraderie is worth its weight in gold. It's almost better than any therapy you could ever get because... We just need to feel connected um, in those pieces of our stories. It makes total sense if we really think about it, you know, that we know that there's such thing as postpartum depression. You know, when we give birth to children, that process is often so much more predictable. You know, the majority of people are pregnant for nine months and millions upon millions of women go through a very similar process to bring a child into the world, and we recognize as a culture, at least more so, that even with all of that, we can still get to the other side of that, and it can be really hard, and it can cause depression. And so why wouldn't it, in a situation where it could take anywhere from days to months, and it's completely unpredictable in a situation where we bring a child into our family through adoption, and there's just so many uh, messier pieces. You know, there's all three parts of the adoption triad, and, you know, our stories aren't always the same. We can't always easily find someone who's going through or going through like we can when we're, you know, four months pregnant with a best friend or whatever uh, on paper. Like when you think about it like that, it makes so much sense that of course there would be moms out there suffering with post-adoption depression. But again, like you're saying, it's just, we don't talk about it very much or it's not as well known or communicated. Yeah. Well, and now that, you know, I, and so many, so that was, so she's six now. So now, now that we're so far back from it, and we also have this great community, you know, when we entered into the world of international adoption, I feel like for me, there's almost been a better community 
in that sense than there has been in um, connecting with people who have adopted domestically or infant domestically just because I think there's just more conversation that is had around international adoption, especially in the later years. And, you know, I've learned that parents can suffer from PTSD when their children have certain diagnosis. And, you know, it is not uncommon to have post-adoption depression. And so I think just back then I really wished I had just known that. I wish I'd had um, a better community of people that have been going through it. I think it's just difficult to find, or at least for me, it really was. And now, um, I mean, you know, I'm just thankful that I had the support that I did. I wish that I had sought out the support of um, like a professional that would have just, you know, validated what I was going through and had just been able to give advice. But, you know, my husband and my mom and um, some of our close friends, like they were supportive in the best way that they knew how. And I am just, you know, I prayed over my daughter constantly that, you know, her heart would not be affected by how I was feeling. Six years kind of removed from that. We see the fruit in that. We see the benefit. And, you know, she's my only daughter. And it's amazing, like that relationship that we have now. I'm just super thankful for. I'm so glad for you guys. I think to your point, I think agencies probably could do a better job of warning us that post-adoption depression is a real thing also. I mean, and mm-hmm. so I think the weight of all of that shouldn't be on our shoulders because we weren't set up for success in all of those situations. So, Yeah, we had, um, I no, I totally agree. We had two different agencies for, like we had one agency for our domestic adoption and we had two agencies for our international adoption. And I will say that the training and the the online training and the books that we were required to read for our international adoptions definitely prepared us way more than the first time. I feel like if we had been given a lot of that, like I would have been able, because some of the stuff that we went through with before our international adoptions, it talked about things like that. And, you know, that's kind of really how I even recognized of what I had gone through. Like when I was reading those books, I was like, whoa. So what I went through was a real thing, you know, three years ago. Like that wasn't just me being crazy or struggling with depression. Like that was actually a real thing. And so, yeah, I definitely think so. I think there are some agencies that are really doing a great job, though. So we connected through Summer, who was another guest on the podcast and nominated some phenomenal everyday extraordinary people. And she nominated you because of your involvement with a really important organization called the Lost Sparrows. So can you tell us a little bit about what that's all about? Yeah, so for us, our involvement with Lost Sparrows really started uh, when we first went to Bulgaria to meet Nicholas. I vividly remember leaving the subway and walking the half mile or so to his orphanage. And we would go there every day, twice a day. And I remember the first time that we walked through those gates, I just felt a huge weight placed on my heart, you know, because like I said, we didn't really know much about international adoption before then. And so, you know, I'd read a couple of things on blogs and just people's stories, but I don't think I was really prepared for the reality of what we would see and smell um, and hear over that first week that we would spend with him. And just, you know, thinking about on that experience, even now just kind of makes me catch my breath. And I just feel that weight again, um, so when we came home from Bulgaria, we just kind of saw everything th- through a totally different lens. And 
the best way that I know how to describe it was that there was just this strange place that I felt like had been created. And I didn't know what to do with that space. I knew that our involvement with the orphan crisis was not over, but we really weren't quite sure where we would go from there um, and what to do. We, after we adopted Nicholas, we didn't, you know, I wanted to adopt again, but Eric didn't. So I just wasn't really sure what the future looked like for us. And so I knew that I needed to tell everyone about, you know, what we had seen and just the horrors that we had seen. And so I would share our stories on Facebook and, you know, in person. And it just honestly kind of felt like it was never enough. To be completely honest, I kind of was getting angry and discouraged that more people were not as horrified or angry at the whole thing as I was. And, you know, I was connected to people online who were kind of feeling the same things I was. And there were some people, you know, in our, I guess, personal life, in real life, as I like to say, but just not as many as I thought should be, you know, like I expected there to be this big up in arms, like call to action kind of thing. Yeah, and there I'm wasn't. Totally and with so, you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so when we went back to Ukraine in 2016, we just saw more in our youngest son's orphanage than what we really saw in Nicholas's. We just came home with another sense of urgency and um, just trying to find out how to fill that space that we weren't sure what to do with. And so Eric and I would talk about what our next steps would be and, you know, as far as like if we should start a nonprofit or if we should adopt again or if we should be fostering or how we should be sharing our story. And so, so this is kind of where my friendship with uh, Stacy comes into play. So Stacy Gagnon is the founder of Lost Sparrows, her and her husband, Darren. I was just trying to figure out how to explain that friendship. And so I was recently reading, I don't know if you've ever read The Four Loves. He's talking about friendship and he kind of talks about this. I, he talks about the four different kind of loves and one of those is friendship. And so he's talking about friendship and he talks about when people, two people discover that they have something in common and until that moment, they believed that that interest or that insight, they thought that it was kind of like their unique burden. And they find someone. And what the quote he says is he says that when they say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And so that's kind of how I describe my friendship with Stacy. We met her in front of a Bulgarian strip club in country. Eric and I were picking up Nicholas. We, like many other adoptive families in country, we were just desperate to meet up with other Americans and be able to talk to someone who speaks your language, you know? And yeah, so, yeah, so we met up and neither one of us knew how to read Bulgarian maps. And so I was like, well, why don't we just meet in front of our NGO's office? And our NGO's office happened to be on the second floor in front of a strip club. <laughs> so our first picture is in front of a Bulgarian strip club. Um, as all but, good friendships should start. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So we, so Stacy and Darren and Eric and I, we all live on opposite sides of the country. And we've only had a lot, a very limited amount of time in person. But we both just share the same heart and conviction for um, the orphan crisis and what to do. And so um, last year, Eric and I were kind of talking about, you know, what our next steps were going to be as far as how to be involved. And um, I was talking to Stacy on the phone one day and she, you know, said, well, Darren and I, the Lord is leading us to start a nonprofit. And she asked if we wanted to be on the board and just be involved in that. And so Eric and I were like, 
yes, we totally do. <laughs> I love those connections with people when you are in the same lane as someone and they're doing the same things that you want to be doing and are passionate about those same things. You can create such a fast and deep friendship over some of these really important issues in the world. And I just think it's so beautiful. Yeah. What does Lost Bears do? Kind of what's your vision? Yeah. Currently, we are focusing on providing education and resources and support um, to help encourage foster care in Bulgaria and in other Eastern European countries. I don't know if you've seen the latest statistics of international adoptions, but um, you know, we know that there's this great need of children that are in orphanages and institutions, and the rate of international adoptions into the United States has dramatically decreased. Um, I think in 2006, it was around 20,000-ish children that were adopted into the United States from other countries, and in 2016, it was 5,300. So there is obviously a shift that is happening where, you know, it used to be that you know, people would rally around international adoption and say, this is the way that we can save these children and this is the way that, you know, we can protect them. But we are definitely seeing a shift where there is another need and that need is for foster families that are in the countries. And so, you know, we know that kids, you know, I've heard you talk about it before, that kids that that come from hard places like orphanages and institutions that they have physical changes that happen in the brain and it makes interacting and parenting them very different than it does um, children who do not come from hard places. And so part of what we want to do is just help educate people on what trauma is and how trauma and abuse and neglect affect a child. And we want to be able to provide that knowledge so that people are better equipped and you know, people that are already fostering or, you know, going into orphanages and helping these children that they would be better equipped or that other people would feel empowered to become foster families, that they would feel like they have the support of their church and of their community to take in these children. So really our goal is to support the movement of deinstitutionalization and to, um, support foster families like we desire the nothing more but to see the flow of kids stop that are going into orphanages yeah so really that's what our hope is I love that and I've talked about this on the show before but I think that this movement to be able to keep kids in their countries even though I know that there's a lot of really strong opinions about the adoption rate falling I think one of the beautiful things that's going to come out of this is people who are now being forced to think outside the box and think, okay, well, international adoption is not the quote-unquote solution that it's been in the past. What else can we do? And, you know, and there's things that we know that are truths. We know that institutional placements for children are not the best for them. Mm. But we also know that changing cultures is a really big deal for kids, especially older kids. Um, yeah. I think it's still impactful when you're adopted as an infant or a toddler. But, you know, we've seen with our older kids, it's almost a trauma. They feel it as a trauma equal to all the other things that we would typically categorize as traumas, even though I had never thought about it that way until we adopted them and, and really got to know their stories and then just watched their 
emotions unfold as they adjusted here. And I've talked to some other folks about this, but I almost feel like that ability to stay with your local community trumps what we see as kind of traditional family solutions. Um, not that institution is better, but, you know, being able to be connected with a foster family or a family who will advocate for you or some kind of stability in your home country, especially if you're an older child, is preferable over what we would consider like a nuclear permanent adoption legal situation with a family, you know, in a different country. Mm -hmm. And so I am such a huge fan of folks that are really thinking about and thinking about how to support other countries to care for their own orphans, you know, whether it be through foster care or I don't, you know, and that's probably one of the best ways to do it is because it's a family situation for these kids. But I'm just such a huge fan of in-country solutions. And so I'm really excited about what you guys are doing. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's definitely um, a multi-prong approach. And, you know, there are already so many great organizations that are in these countries that are, you know, working so hard. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that international adoption, I think it is still something that, you know, I, I certainly advocate for because, you know, there are some of these children that they can't wait. You know, last year I held a 16 year old boy that weighed 21 pounds and, you know, like there's just some of these kids that they, they cannot wait for the social change to happen where they are pulled out of an orphanage and put into a foster family. And so, I certainly advocate for both. I think international adoption is great. I mean, two of our biggest blessings are from other countries. And, but, you know, like you said, like we also know that um, there has to be a change in country. So that's kind of what we hope to do. We just hope to support that. And um, we're in June, we're going to be traveling to Bosnia and to Bulgaria to provide some of the training about trauma and what it is and, you know, how a child's brain is changed and, you know, how you can parent them better because there's definitely some tricks that, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily just know without knowing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, so I'm pretty excited. Eric and I just feel completely honored to be a part of Lost Sparrows. Yeah, what, how has your outlook on how you look at other things in the world changed through the lens of, you know, knowing that these things are going on around the world, how has that kind of shifted your paradigm? Until 2013, 2014, we had no clue about orphanages. And even now when I think back to, you know, I know that I can't feel guilty for not knowing what I didn't know, but I kind of do. Because when you are faced with the reality that, there's children dying because no one is coming to get them. Um, that kind of shifts your outlook on everything. So I think about it all the time. I think about what I could be doing better. I think about, you know, if there's people that I need to be talking to. Because before, I just kind of thought if I would see a picture of a kid who, where you could see his skin and where you could see his bones through his skin or something like that, I would, again, kind of think of that commercial with Sarah McLaughlin playing where, you know, oh, they just found the worst kid that they could find just to sensationalize this, to raise money or, you know, something like that. But now I know the truth that there's 
hundreds of thousands of kids that you can see their bones through their skin. And so just knowing that just kind of changes um, everything. Like, Yeah. And I think when you've been up close and personal, too, I, there's a quote, I think, you know, like, a thousand deaths is a statistic or some, I don't even know if the number is, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot of deaths is a statistic, but you know, one death is a tragedy, you know, like, especially when mm-hmm. you are right up against it um, and it's, and your stories are intertwined. And so, yeah, because when you see something like that, like when you see a 10 year old who weighs 12 pounds or, you know, when we adopted our, two-year-old he was two he turned two um about a week and a half after we got home and he fit into three to six months clothing or our six-year-old who um came home and he could wear three teeth and you know there was nothing wrong with him like there was no reason why he should be that small it was only because he was being starved you know like that's really the only reason and after he came home and you know immediately gained all this weight and you know, he's eight now and he fits into a size seven, eight and him coming home and having an open sore on his back. Like when you see those kind of things, you just can't help but be changed. And so, you know, I just pray all the time that I will not forget those things that, you know, now that my eyes have been open, that they're not going to be closed again. And I hope that other people's eyes are opened. I know that not everybody can go out and adopt internationally, but there's just so many things that people can do. And so, yeah, I just pray for that all the time that people would desire to foster in country, even here in the United States, you know, like that they would desire to do that and they would desire to support foster families and adoptive families because it is not an easy road at all. And so just having support there is priceless. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, What, do you suggest people do who are listening and are thinking I could do something or who are just having their eyes open to just this great need around the world for, you know, so many different things and it can be overwhelming. So what is the best way to put your toe in the water to start off? Yeah. So, well, one of the things that um, Stacey talks a lot about with Lost Sparrows is focusing on the one because, you know, looking at the whole crisis as a whole, whether internationally or here in the United States, it can just be completely overwhelming. So my advice to people is to just focus on the one. Like if you are not in a position to foster or adopt, then look out and find a foster or adoptive family that you can support by, you know, bringing a meal or sending notes of encouragement or, you know, just even sometimes just dropping by and saying hello or sending a text. And for people that are interested in finding out what it looks like to foster or adopt, you know, locally in a lot of places, there's a lot of great organizations or churches to work with for fostering. And so, you know, I would totally recommend that people look at their church first and see if there is a foster adopt ministry because they can completely find out more information there. And then, yeah, if anyone ever wants to talk about international adoption or domestic adoption, I'm always available to talk. I love to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of an open book, too. It's it's one of the more fun things that has come out of our adoption journey. Yeah, I, yeah, it it is. And I just encourage people to just don't 
to set aside all preconceived notions of whatever they think, you know, fostering or adopting looks like and just get out there and really read. I mean, there's so many great blogs to read and um, just talk to people and hear their stories and, you know, talk to children that were adopted and hear their stories, you know, like there's just a lot of information out there. So if people want to know, they can find it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your passion and what you're doing and just following those little nudges. I think a lot of times people ask me, like, how do you know you're called to something or, you know, that you're supposed to do it? And I love your description of just saying, like, I just knew there was something more. There was this little empty space in our life, and I knew that it needed to be filled with something, you know, for a greater purpose and a greater cause. And so um, I'm just really thankful and really admire your faithfulness to keep moving towards making a difference. It's overwhelming, and it's hard, and it's not like there's not – things going on, you know, you have kids right in your midst day to day, and you could definitely say, that's enough, you know, we're going to focus right here, and, you know, we did our part, we adopted twice or three times, and and so just thanks for being willing to look for more. Well, thanks. (laughs) All right, so to wrap up, I've been asking this question of all of my guests because I feel like social media helps us feel like we're not enough and yeah. the part that you know makes us makes our post adoption depression selves you know fall deeper into a hole really so what are you not doing oh gosh i mean wow so if i compare my life to you know 10 years ago 5 years ago even 2 years ago there's a lot that i'm not doing so i would say that now well, first of all, I'm not decorating my house for every holiday. I used to put up stuff for Valentine's Day or Halloween or Easter, and I just don't anymore. And at first, I felt guilty because I thought, well, maybe my kids need those cute little decorations. But I realized that they don't. <laughs> they don't care. And so that is one thing that I'm not doing. Another thing that I'm not doing is worrying about <laughs> what my kids look like when they get dressed. So... There are only so many things that I can be in charge of in one day, you know? And so letting them pick out their clothes has been something that I've just kind of had to release. And my daughter is quite the fashionista. And so she thinks that um, all, like when you get dressed, if you're going to look good, that you wear all the same color. So um, if she wants to wear pink that day, it is a pink shirt, a pink skirt, pink socks pink pants and a pink bow but the pinks don't match like they're not even on the same color card so I've just learned to let it go because she feels beautiful and is proud of herself for picking that out and so yeah my my youngest son he picks out his clothes and I mean there's no telling what he's gonna wear so yeah just try to let that stuff go and I also really try to make sure that I am keeping myself accountable in terms of social media because it is so easy to compare yourself or compare your husband or your children. And so I just try to make sure that I'm not. And just remember that people are always trying to present their best selves. And so someone once told me that um, that whenever you post something on social media, media, you should always think, like, what am I trying to make people feel? Like, what do I want people to feel when they see this picture or this post? And so I really try hard to make sure to share real life things, you know, (laughs) even though it might be a parenting fail or, you know, I don't look my best or something like that. So, yeah. 
Gosh, that's such a great thought. I was just thinking as you were telling that, you know, we often, at least I do, so I'll speak for myself, I post on social media for how I want to feel, right? Like I want to feel proud of something I've done or I want to pretend like I'm, I have it together, so I'll put that on social media and I'll want to ignore the weeks of unfolded clothes or, you know, floors that haven't seen a mop, a vacuum, or a broom in years, yeah. <laughs> not months or weeks or days even. But you often don't think about the person who consumes that. You know, it's, it is. It's mm-hmm. It's all about us. Like we post what we want to remember or what, you know, that one time that we did get it right. And we want to remember that. But then we forget that if that's what we're doing every four days, that we get one snap of a picture right you know, how that mm-hmm. makes other people feel who are consuming it. So what a great way to think about that. I really like that. Yeah, I had, well, and I had someone tell me, and I've had a couple of people say this, and they say, and it's people that don't really know me very well, it's people that kind of just know me, you know, through social media or, um, you know, that I know in real life, but we just don't really hang out very much or chat very often. And so they'll say, well, you, you know, you have everything together. Like, I don't know how you do it. And it kind of just, like, it makes my heart drop because I don't ever want to present myself as something that is not true. You know, like, I do not have everything together. And, you know, I have to apologize to my children sometimes because I do not say the right thing or I am not responding in patience. Like, I'm getting aggravated because I've told them 15 times to pick up the toy that the dog is chewing up or, you know, something like that. And so, yeah, so I just, yeah, I don't want people to think that I, I'm like this perfect mom who is able to homeschool four children and, you know, keep up with therapy appointments and have one child in public school and I'm the perfect wife because that's just not reality, you know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So last wrap-up question, do you have a life hack? I mean, you have five kids between the ages of, what was your, I can't remember your youngest, between like Yeah, between three and eight, yeah. Between three and eight, which is, you know, on average, a kid for every year, which is pretty intense. And so what do you have, what are you doing that's kind of like helping you keep some semblance of something together? Mm-hmm. So first, I try to buy at least two pre-made meals a week <laughs> um, because it's just easy to stick a frozen lasagna or something like that in the oven. And then the other is I have three vacuums. I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, but I have three vacuums. One is a Roomba, and that was actually gifted to us by a wraparound community group when we brought one of our kids home. Um, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of obsessed with making sure our floors are clean, and we have two dogs, and so our floors are not clean. So we run the Roomba a lot, and then I have a big vacuum that does like deep cleaning, and then I have another vacuum <laughs> that hangs on the wall that I can just like grab out and vacuum the couch or the floors down. Is that super weird? No, it's not. I was when you said three vacuums, I was thinking like how that would play out because then I was thinking maybe I need three. Not yours are like kind of have different purposes, but I was like maybe if I yeah. had three and they were in different parts of the house, like one in the basement and one upstairs, and like I wouldn't feel like oh, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to drag it around. But I know, yeah. But yours have like legitimate different purposes, and we were a Roomba family years ago when they first came out, and it was like the best. Thing ever. There was nothing more satisfying than walking out of your house and coming back and seeing those Roomba 
marks on your carpet and having it yeah. feel so clean. I mean, like <laughs> yes. the simple pleasures in life. Well, it kind of died and we tore up all of our carpets. I feel like it's not as satisfying anymore because if you can't see where he's been, it just doesn't feel the same. <laughs> but, I know. It's um, true. But it is still satisfying, though, to clean out the dust then, you know, when it's when you thought your floors were clean and so you run the Roomba and then you go empty out the little bin and it's full. That that's is true. It's pretty satisfying. That's true. And we used to, when my kids were little, I would run it like in bedrooms a lot, you know, like while we were out, I'd be like, we're going to do this bedroom while we're out, you know, at the park or whatever. And I would say to the kids, like, it has to pick up your room because it has to be Roomba ready because mommy's not going to be here to like, you know, if I'm vacuuming, I won't run over your favorite Lego or your whatever it's going to be. But Roomba's going to vacuum while we're gone. And he doesn't know the difference. And of course, like, he also wasn't going to, you know, suck up any baby dolls. But my kids were two and four and they didn't know that. So I would say you need to pick up everything that you don't want that Roomba to eat. And yeah. they were... You know, I've never had kids declutter. You pick up so thoroughly, you know, because a lot of times I'd say, like, go clean your room, you know, pick up your toys off your floor, Mm -hmm. and they would pick up, like, two, and you would come back in and be like, what happened here? But during the Roomba years, they got really good at putting things away because they were terrified that while we were gone, when they couldn't control it, this Roomba was going (laughs) to go around and eat all of their stuff. Yeah, well, we have to turn off our Roomba sometimes because our youngest three-and-a-half-year-old so that's that three-and-a-half-year-old that has Down syndrome, and he right now is obsessed with things that make noise and things that can make repeated noises. And so he'll go over to the corner where the Roomba is, and he'll just press the on and off button over and over and over. And so that one, the Roomba is in a little bit of a timeout. It only comes out when it's going to be running, and he's not in the room. <laughs> yeah, or like overnight. Yeah, we used to do yeah. it overnight, which was really fun too yeah and I actually probably need that other vacuum like the little one like the one for just quick things where you just need to it's amazing grab you know a little bit of something yeah I I probably would use that one yeah it's pretty amazing you might have to send me the link to that we might put a link to that on the show notes page so if anyone else (laughs) that situation they can go get it because we're here to serve people I know anything to make your life easier well yeah that doesn't make you weird at all um, and it makes your house probably way cleaner than mine. So I'm thinking that's probably a win for you. Well, maybe when the kids get older, they can learn to use all of them. And I'll just sit back and encourage them, you know? Yeah. I mean, work yourself out of a job, I think, is probably yeah. what you want to go for. Yeah, I agree. Well, Blythe, thank you so much for rearranging your morning and getting childcare and hanging out with me for a little bit. It was really fun to get to know you and hear your heart. You know, thanks for your ideas for how to get involved and for your sweet little family. I'm really thankful for you. Oh, thanks for having me. I love how you can just hear Blythe's passion through her sweet voice about bringing awareness to the orphan crisis in Bulgaria. She also challenged me to think about my social media more and how it's consumed and how it's making others feel. I feel so privileged to bring you the stories of these extraordinary friends I'm meeting and still get to learn myself and be a better human in the process. If you want to reach out to Blythe, she blogs at fivelittleoaks.com. That's five written out. And her Instagram is at Blythe Royards, R-O-Y-A-A-R-D-S. 
I'll have links to both her blog and her Instagram, along with a link to her favorite wall vacuum, whom she affectionately calls Sebastian, and the books and the other episodes we referenced when we talked. It'll all be over at the show notes page at www.thecorkums.com. You can connect with me or just say hi or give feedback about the show. I'd love to connect. I'm at M.A. Corkum on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoy these stories, make sure to subscribe so you can hang out with us each week. A five-star rating on iTunes or a thumbs up on Stitcher helps other people find us. I'm so glad you joined us today, and I hope you'll be back.